You may be seated, and we are in uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. If you need a Bible, uh, just raise your hand. We'll make sure that someone provides you with one. We have plenty, so don't be shy if you need one to follow along with. Acts chapter 8. And we're going to start in the uh, middle of verse 1, so technically Acts 8, 1b, reading down through verse 8. These words written by Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. Let's pray. Father God, your word is living and true and powerful, and I pray that your word would pierce our hearts today and would help us to gain a greater understanding of you and what you're doing in the world and what that means for us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Deemer. One of the um, lasting memories from my childhood, and I've shared this with some of you before, I've shared it from the pulpit before, but uh, one of the lasting memories from my childhood was when Elizabeth Elliot came to speak at a chapel service at my elementary school when I lived in Ecuador as a missionary kid in Quito. Elizabeth Elliot is the widow of Jim Elliot one of the five missionaries killed by the Horani uh, Indian tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. He was killed along with his four missionary companions on January 8th of 1956. The day she came and spoke at our elementary school chapel, she was accompanied by one of the primitive Amazon Indians who was part of the hunting party that actually killed her husband, but he was now a believer and follower of Christ. And I'll never forget him being there and her being there and them speaking to our chapel that morning. In her book, Through Gates of Splendor, if you haven't read that, read it. Through Gates of Splendor, she writes this regarding her husband's death and the death of the other men who were there. To the world at large, this was a sad waste of five young lives. But God had his plan and purpose in all things. There were those whose lives were changed by what happened on Palm Beach. Palm Beach was the name that the missionaries had given to this little beach on the side of the river there where they were landing their plane. This didn't happen in Florida, okay? I'm just letting you know. There were those whose lives were changed by what happened on Palm Beach. In Brazil, a group of Indians at a mission station deep in Mato Grosso, upon hearing the news, dropped to their knees and cried out to God for forgiveness for their own lack of concern for fellow Indians who did not know of Jesus Christ. From Rome, an American official wrote to one of the widows, I knew your husband. He was, to me, the ideal of what a Christian should be. An Air Force major stationed in England with many hours of jet flying immediately began making plans to join the Missionary Aviation Fellowship. A missionary in Africa wrote, 
Our work will never be the same. We knew two of the men. Their lives had left a mark on ours. Off the coast of Italy, an American naval officer was involved in an accident at sea. As he floated alone on a raft, he recalled Jim Elliott's words, which he had read in a news report. This is what Jim Elliott said. When it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. He prayed that he might be saved, knowing that he had more to do than die. He was not ready. And God answered his prayer, and he was rescued. In Des Moines, Iowa, an 18-year-old boy prayed for a week in his room, then announced to his parents, I'm turning my life over completely to the Lord. I want to try to take the place of one of those five. What the world might have considered, and many did consider, a foolish waste of young life, God used for the advancement of His kingdom and the gospel. And the same can be said here of the story that we've been in for the past couple of weeks, which is the martyrdom of Stephen. The same probably was said by some people. What a waste of this young man. Obviously, he was gifted. He was chosen as one of the seven to serve in the church. So obviously, there was something about him that the rest of the church said, hey, this man needs to be involved in service ministry in our church. Obviously, he was gifted in his ability to interpret the scriptures because he gives this tremendous sermon to the Sanhedrin. Obviously, he was bold And some onlookers might say, what a waste. Others might say, what a failure. Here he goes into the Sanhedrin and preaches, and it results in his own death. And still others might have said, complained about him and said, what a foolish thing he did, because now look what he stirred up. Couldn't he have gone in and not spoken so harshly to these guys? Couldn't he have gone in and and, and, and not called them uncircumcised of the heart? Couldn't he have done something a little bit more gentle? But God had Stephen's martyrdom in mind, and God had the spreading of the gospel in mind. The North African early church father, Tertullian, was right when he said, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church, and it still is the seed today. So what I want us to do this morning, I want us to see three things in this passage. They're in your notes there. I want us to go through these three things regarding persecution And then I want to talk a little bit of application. How do we apply this? Here we are in America where we don't have this type of opposition to the gospel. We don't have this type of violent persecution of the church, at least not yet. And so how do we apply this to our life this morning? So we'll get to that. But first, I want us to notice three things about persecution. On the first hand, well, first of all, I've titled today's message, The Painful Joy of of persecution. And the first thing I want us to see is that persecution is a horrendous evil. Persecution is a horrendous evil. Listen to what happened in Jerusalem when Stephen was killed. It says, and there arose on that day a great persecution. On that day, immediately, the day Stephen was killed, there was a reaction against the church. There was a reaction against Christians. It was immediate. There was no time for the believers to gather. There was no time for them to get their wits about them, to come up with a plan. The violence immediately began to overtake the church. And it was a great persecution. The word here, great, okay, mega. It's, 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 the, it's the Greek word for great. So we, we use the term mega sometimes. We refer to something being, being big. And so this was a mega persecution. This wasn't just a little bit of persecution, which they had experienced up to this point. Now it becomes supersized. It's mega persecution that breaks out against the church. And the word persecution itself 
means to chase or to hunt down or to pursue. So there's this mega pursuit now that begins against the believers, against the church. Um, up until this point, they've been harassed and things, they've been beaten up a little bit, they've been abused, but now a hunt begins. It reminds me, uh, as I was thinking about the hunting, I'm not a hunter, I don't know if there are any hunters out here, but I remember when a squirrel got into the roof of my house, and I tried to get it out, and at first I harassed it. I was banging on the wall, leave squirrel, leave. And then I tried to bug it a little bit more, and I bought this little contraption. You could turn this noise, and it's supposed to bug the squirrel so much that he leaves, and it didn't really affect anything, but hopefully it was bugging him some. And then I went and I boarded up the hole so he wouldn't get in, but he still got in. Finally, I had to resort to the hunt, and I borrowed a pellet gun, and I, I did away with the squirrel. It's no longer a problem, although I think his relatives are back trying to wreak havoc on me again. But that's kind of the picture. They've been, the, the Christians have been harassed by the, the Jewish leaders up to this point. They've been threatened, if you remember. Don't preach the word. Don't preach about Jesus anymore. Then they were brought in and said, hey, we told you not to preach. Now we're going to beat you. And they beat him with 39 lashes and sent him back out. Well, how did the apostles respond? They, they, they respond in joy. that They were counted worthy to, to suffer for the sake of Christ. And then they bring Stephen in, the third trial that we read so far in the book of Acts. And this time... It results in his death. And so now the hunt is on. The pursuit is on. The results of this persecution against the church in Jerusalem was that they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now the word scattered here literally means to sow. It's the word you would use in the Greek to talk about a farmer spreading his seed. Sowing his seed. Now that's very, very important. Luke intentionally does not choose the word they fled. It says they were scattered. They were sown like seed. And that's important, and we'll get back to it in a little bit. And it says all. Well, does that mean every believer? I don't think all the believers left Jerusalem because we see here the apostles didn't leave, first of all, and we see the church continues in Jerusalem. So it can't be all the believers left, but what possibly could Luke mean here? Well, I think potentially he means most, if not all, the Hellenist Jews. Because remember, the, the servants that were brought up uh, in the church were all Hellenist names, the seven servants in the church. And Stephen here, he's arguing with Hellenist Jews over the, the interpretation of Moses and the law and the temple. And now there's this persecution. And Philip, we'll see here in a little bit, is one of those who scatters. And so I believe here perhaps that most of the Hellenist Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, were the ones who were being pursued out of town. And I think we can also come to that conclusion because it says devout Jews, devout men later came and, and buried Stephen. So there were still some in the church who had the ability to, to, to walk around the city and not feel as threatened. But at least for the Hellenist Jews, there was this tremendous persecution that came upon them. But there were some devout Jewish believers who remained and they buried Stephen. And persecution is a horrendous evil. The description here of what Saul is doing pushes that point home even more. It says Saul was ravaging the church. That word means devastating. He was ruining the church. It's only used here in the New Testament. The only, place, the only other place it's used is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, in Psalm 79, 13, and it refers to a wild boar destroying a vineyard. That's the image here. Paul is this ravaging, wild, angry man destroying, ruining the church, or trying to at least. 
and he was dragging off men and women. Now, this is particularly cruel because only the men were the ones preaching the gospel. They were the only ones out there proclaiming the gospel. But he's going and he's taking away men and women. He's not just limiting it to the men, which would have been cruel enough type of persecution. He's taking the women as well. This is a very particularly evil type of persecution that Paul is carrying out. And he committed them to prison, it says here. And from Saul, or Paul's own testimony in the book of Acts, we know that he did more than just stick them in jail. Uh, in verse uh, 19 of chapter 22, we read that he beat them. Uh, in chapter 26, we read that he tried to get them to blaspheme. In other words, he tried to get them to do what Stephen did, speak against the temple, speak against the law. And then it says he cast his vote against them when they were sentenced to death. So he did more than just stick them in jail. He had them beaten. He, had them, he, he tried them and tried to use their words against them, cause them to blaspheme, and then would have them put to death. So this persecution is a horrendous evil, and it produces much grief and sadness. When they buried Stephen, it says they did it with great lamentation. You know, it was against Jewish law to bury, uh, well, to lament, publicly lament over a condemned criminal. And so it was a brave thing that the Christians were doing here by publicly lamenting with great lamentation over Stephen. So there was great lamentation, there was great sadness, there was great sorrow, and there was great pain. When the wives and the young children of the five missionaries who were killed on Palm Beach in Ecuador, uh, when they were killed by those Hawani Indians, uh, when they found out the news, there was great sadness, there was great lamentation, uh, there was great sorrow, because persecution is a horrendous evil. That's why we pray for the persecuted church. I encourage you to pray regularly for the persecuted church. And one of the best ways you can do that is to get a newsletter like from the Voice, Voice of the Martyrs or from Open Doors. It's free. You just sign up for it online and you get it. And you get this information and it gives you specific things you can be praying about. So we pray for believers all around this globe, some of whom at this very moment are going through intolerable pain and suffering for the sake of Christ. Make no mistake, persecution is a horrendous evil. Yet, the scriptures do not allow us to leave it at that. Persecution is horrible, yet, persecution is a tool in the hands of our marvelous God. Persecution is a horrendous evil, yet it is a tool in the hands of our marvelous God. The fact of the matter here in this text is, is that the believers have not yet accomplished Acts 1.8. So go back a few weeks, well, a few months. We've been in Acts for a while now. And if you remember Acts 1.8, it said this. Jesus says to them, Jesus speaking to the disciples as he's about to ascend back to the Father, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That happened at Pentecost. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. They had done that. And in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. The fact of the matter is it takes Acts 8.1 before the church begins to carry out Acts 1.8. It takes this persecution against the church before they actually begin to carry out Acts 1.8 like they were supposed to. So God uses this to move them along. He uses this persecution as a tool in his hands. Now, as we've been reading through the book of Acts, uh, from the point of the ascension of Jesus to this point, probably, most scholars believe, three to four years have now passed. 
I know reading the passage, as we read through it here, it doesn't seem like that much time has passed because Luke's only picking out certain things to talk about, but about three years at least have passed since Jesus ascended to be with the Father to this point right here. So in three years, they hadn't gone to, into the other parts of Judea or Samaria. So here they are, three years later, with approximately 15,000 believers, if you add up all the numbers that we've been looking at up to this point. Approximately 15,000 believers. And they haven't, in three years, gone outside the walls of Jerusalem in any significant way. So God uses this Acts 8-1 tragedy in evil to push them to carry out the Acts 1-8 commission. So God is using this persecution as a tool in his hands. Now I want to mention, go back to the word scattered here. It says that they were scattered. I think that's very intentional that Luke uses the word for so. So I've, I brought a, a, um, a device this morning that's a, a, a scatterer. <laughs> it's a spreader, right? And so when you put the seeds in here or the, the garden stuff that you're supposed to, I'm not going to spin it in case anything does actually spread out on everybody here. But you, you put stuff in here, whether it be something to fertilize your yard or to seed, and you spin this and, and it spreads it. This is the image I want us to have this morning. This is the persecution. And it's a horrible thing. It's an evil thing. As you turn this thing here, you know, it, it spins and it and, and, uh, has this blade down here that's spinning around. And, and so the image here is that believers are put into this thing. Christians are put into this, this horrible persecution. And, and they're run through this thing, but God spreads them out, shoots them out, sows them into the world. The, the, image, the word here, for scattered is exactly the same word used in Matthew chapter 13 and in Luke um, chapter 8 and in Mark chapter 4. It's the exact same word when Jesus talks about the parable of the sower. It's the same word here. And so those hundreds of people who were listening to Jesus talk about the, the word being sown, I bet they never thought at that time that the, God's method for sowing the word was that he was going to put them through the grinder and sow them out into the world. Because they have the Word. The Word is here in their heart. The Word is here in the presence of the Holy Spirit living in them. God's Spirit now is with every believer. And so God shoots them out, spreads them out, using the tool of persecution. And so that's the image here of it being scattered. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 16 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads... The fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Philippians 1, 12-13, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me and what's happening to him as he's in prison has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So God reigns, that's our theme for the series, God reigns over the suffering of his church. God takes persecution and makes it serve his end Saul is ravaging but God is reigning Saul is ravaging here but God is reigning um, try to illustrate that a little bit more this morning we'll see if this works I brought a little trick here for the kids and uh, so I need one volunteer uh, in the back far corner there come on up here 
and, and tell me your name. Ethan? All right, Ethan. All right, I want you to hold this. And I put it in there. Hold it, turn around so everyone can see. I put it in there, this little stuff. It looks like snow. See this powder in here? Oh, all right. It looks like snow, okay? It's not snow, but it's supposed to look like snow. So I put that in here, and there's just a little bit, but if you could count all the grains, there may be thousands of grains there. And that's kind of the image of what the church was like in Jerusalem. And it's confined to the walls of this little Petri dish thing, all right? So hold that. And what I want us to see here this morning, and uh, maybe we should do this over the table here. All right, hold it right there. Yeah, so everyone can see, though. All right, and I've got a little vial here of water that I've colored uh, red. And I want this to represent the blood of the martyrs. Stephen's blood, the blood of all the men and women that Paul dragged, Saul, dragged out of prison and sentenced to death. Okay, and what did Tertullian say? He said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So I'm going to put that in here. And we're going to see what happens, okay? All right. Hold it up there so everyone can see. All right, now. There it goes. And it's starting to expand. And it's starting to grow. And it's just overflowing out of the Petri dish or whatever that is right there. And I'm making a mess. And now I'm not going to have anywhere to preach. And Dee's going to get paper towels because I didn't think this through real well. All right. There we go. It didn't quite expand as much as I hoped it would, but that's, that's good enough. People get the image here. But that's the picture of what happened in the church, is that the blood of the martyrs, the blood of Stephen, the blood of the other members of the church who were being killed for their faith, God used that to cause this little group, little, 15,000 people, to just all of a sudden, boom. And from that point forward, the gospel just explodes. From this point forward, from right here, this Acts 8, 1 through 8 passage, from this point forward, we will see the gospel in the book of Acts explode even up into this very day. So there you go. You can have a seat for me. Thank, for, thank you for helping me with that there. All right. Um, I don't think any got on the, on the floor, but anyway, I'll just preach from the stool now. All right. Ah, who cares? There we go. That's the picture. And this has been God's M.O. since the beginning. Since the very beginning, this has been God's standard operating procedure. Do you remember the story of Joseph? It was one of the stories that Stephen mentioned when he was preaching to the Sanhedrin. And you remember the story of Joseph? And we preached it here early on in this church plant. And actually, it was very intentional why I chose that sermon series early on in the church because I wanted us to get in our head the truth that God uses the evil plans and works of mankind to accomplish his perfect ends, his perfect goal. And you remember Joseph? Remember when his brothers come to him in Genesis chapter 50? Their father has now died. They've all, they're all in Egypt now, but their father has died and, and they're freaking out. They're afraid Joseph is going to exact revenge on them because remember they sold him into slavery. They did a horrendous evil. They sold their own brother into slavery, and that was actually plan B. Plan one was to wipe him out. Plan B, hey, here come some people. Let's sell them off. So they sell off their brother. That's the story here. Horrible, horrendous evil that these men commit and are guilty of. And here they are standing before Joseph. Joseph's, God has used Joseph. Joseph has gone before them. He's now the prime minister of Egypt. And now they're afraid that since Jacob has died, that they're going to... Joseph is going to exact some sort of revenge. And they, so they come and they plead for their lives. They actually lie to him. And they plead for their lives. And he says this, Do not fear, 
For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive. As for you, you meant evil. You meant it. You designed it. You purposed it. You, you put it all together, and it was evil. You meant it for evil. And the verse does not say, but God worked it out for good. It says, but God meant it. It uses the same word. God purposed it. God designed it for good. You designed it for evil. Horrendous evil. And you're guilty of it, and you're sinners because of it. And these people persecuting Saul, he meant it for evil. But God designed it for good. God used it for good. And that's the image here. That's been God's way of doing things from the very, very beginning of Scripture. Therefore, persecution isn't just a horrendous evil. It is. But God is in the habit of turning the horrendous into the heavenly, the bad into the beautiful. Elizabeth Elliot knew that. That's why she wrote what she wrote. More importantly, it's why she and Nate Saint, one of the other men who were killed, Nate Saint's sister and their children walked right back into the Horani tribe in Ecuador, walked right back in there and continued the mission efforts that their, that their uh, husband and brother had begun and led nearly the whole tribe to Christ. Because they knew the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And they walked right back into the tribe, even if it meant their own death and the death of their children who were in tow. She knew. She knew how God works. You see what happens when we have a dismissive view of God's sovereignty? You dismiss it. Well, God really couldn't do that. I heard an illustration. I love God's providence. I had an illustration uh, that I heard, and so I'm going to reuse it. Uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, if you like R.C., uh, you can get his monthly uh, message of the month if you give a little donation to his organization. And So I get his, his message of the month, and, and I got it two days ago as I'm preparing the sermon. I open it up, and it says, suffering and joy. I'm like, great, boy, pop that in, whip it in. He's speaking from 1 Peter. And he's talking about the suffering that the early church was having to go through, yet they had this tremendous joy. And, and he, uses an, he mentioned this illustration. He said he was watching the 700 Club. I've never watched the 700 Club, but he was watching it one day. So he's watching the 700 Club, and some lady is on there who has gone through horrible tragedies. She's lost two of her children through just freakish accidents. And she's asking Pat Robertson on the 700 Club, why... Did this happen? Why? And this is what she said. Why did God do this? And Pat Robertson's response was, I can't remember what her name was, but he said, he said, listen, God didn't do this. Satan did this. And then what he said was, God had nothing to do with it. That was his response. That is flat out wrong and will lead that woman down the wrong path. Because if we live in this, this, this is the air we breathe in, in evangelical Christianity today. Is that we don't, I understand what Pat was trying to do. Pat was trying not to give any blame to God and trying to have, let her have an exalted view of God. But it, actually what he's doing is undercutting her view of God and affecting her view of God in such a way that she can't handle the problems of life. 
If our view of God is that he doesn't have any sovereign control over the workings, even of Satan himself, read Job, he does have sovereign control over the workings of Satan. If our view of God, though, is that he doesn't have sovereign control over this world and over the horrendous evil of this world, and we just think he can't do anything about it, and he's sitting on the sidelines, and he, he has nothing to do, then what, how are you going to handle life when cancer hits you? How are you going to handle life when your child is taken? How are you going to handle life when persecution does break out against the church? You know who have the strongest view of the sovereignty of God? You go around this globe, the people that have the strongest view of the absolute sovereignty of God are people who are going through suffering and persecution. The persecuted believers in Iran, the persecuted believers in Afghanistan, the persecuted believers all around the world today, they have a strong view of the sovereignty of God because they know my God is still on his throne even though these people are committing horrendous evil against me and I know God's using it for my good because Romans 8.28 says so. God works all things together, including horrendous evil, for the good of those, for the good, not just so that it'll all work out, for the good, for the joy, for the pleasure of those who are His, who are called according to His purpose. That is our God. He's not a sideline God, hoping, oh man, maybe I can take what Satan did and work it out. No, God is sovereign. And he will use the tool of horrendous evil for his good. And he is not culpable for it. Mankind is for their evil. So, persecution is a horrendous evil. Yet persecution is a tool in the hands of our marvelous God. Therefore, persecution is a source of enormous joy. It's a joyous thing to know that the good news is spreading. It produces great joy in us when we know that our pain and our toil have not gone in vain and that God is reaping a harvest. Does it produce joy in a woman's heart when you tell her God had nothing to do with your children's death? I don't think that produces joy. I think that saps joy. But when you say, you know what? I can't explain it. I can't explain why this horrible thing has happened to you. But I know something. God is good. God is just. God is merciful. God has a plan. And if you're his, if you belong to him, he's going to work all this out for the good. He's working it together for the good. And that man may have meant it for evil, but God means it for good. And so hold on to him. Grab on to him. Hope in him. Find your joy in him. That produces joy saying, sorry. God had nothing to do with it. That doesn't produce joy. It rips it away. Throws it in the trash and says, I hope you can figure out how to live your life. Figure it out. Maybe some pop psychology books can help you. That's not the Bible. And so, persecution, difficulty, pain can be a source of great joy. Look at the Bible. Let's go back to the text here. It says, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is important. Uh, they don't really, you don't really get the sense of what Luke is saying here when he says preaching the word in the English here. Because the word preaching here, there's a couple of different words that can be used for preaching. The normal word for preaching is a word for herald, to proclaim. That's not the word that Luke uses here. The word preaching here 
means, literally means evangelizing the word or gospelizing the word or good newsizing the word if you want to come up with a word that no one else uses. He, he, the, the root word for here is evangelizo, to spread the good news. So he's not just preaching the word. Luke wants to make sure we know that the believers still believe that the message of Christ is good news. Even in the midst of bad things, bad tragedy, bad evil, in the midst of bad things, the good news is still good news. So Philip and the others spread out. They were scattered out, and they were scattered out, and they were saying, this is good news. Knowing Jesus is good. And people might have said, what do you mean knowing Jesus is good? You just lost your home. You just lost your family. How can you say knowing Jesus is good? Because good news is always good news. The gospel is always the good news. So they went out good newsifying Samaria and say, hey, there's good news out there. Imagine the impact that has on people. When you come into the city and say, hey, I got good news. And they say, wait a second here. You just came from Jerusalem. Is that your house going up in smoke? Yeah, but I got good news. When people see us having joy over the gospel message, even when life stinks and is bad, that's a tremendous testimony to the world. And so the people hear this. Wait a second. One of the amazing things about persecuted believers, I think, first of all, you've got to be very brave to live in one of these countries where you're being persecuted. Just, I mean, just doing a little bit of research last night, some of the stories are absolutely horrendous. And I don't want to share them because we have little kids here. It's horrible stories of persecution that happened this week. Horrible stories. And I think, okay, they're having to go through horrible pain, but you know who also is brave? Are the people that hear them preach the gospel in the midst of their pain and say, hey, I'll believe in that too. Because they see what this person is going through. Pain and suffering, and they walk right into it and say, yeah, that's good news. I'm taking it too. Boy, we live in our comfortable American culture, don't we? We can't even get our minds wrapped around the pain that these Jerusalem believers went through and the pain that believers all around the world are going through today. So Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, the good news. And the crowds with one accord paid attention. They received the good news. And once again, just as in previous places in Acts, God confirms the good news message by doing some wonders. Remember I said there's a pattern in Acts? Word and wonder. Word and wonder. Word and wonder. And this is just another example of that pattern. Where God, in the book of Acts, confirms the good news by doing the miraculous. And so we see that in verse 7 here. God does some miraculous things to confirm the gospel message. Now remember, three to four years have passed since Pentecost. When you read the book of Acts, you kind of get the impression, man, these miracles are happening every day. No, miracles are still not commonplace, but God is still ruling, and he can do. He can confirm his message if he wants to with, the, with wonders today. But we have the gospel. We don't have to have the confirmation with wonders because we have the full word today. But in this passage in chapter 7, we see the continuing pattern of God to confirm the gospel through wonders. And the result, the result, it says there was much joy in the city. So this is the strange, two-sided truth about persecution. We read in the first chapter, the first paragraph of this passage that there was great lamentation. And then we read in the second paragraph that there's great joy. That's how persecution works. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. I'm not saying it isn't sad. I'm not saying there's not pain. 
There is great lamentation with this horrendous evil of persecution. But when we know that God's in control and that he's using it for his ends and for his purposes, there is great, great joy. For believers in Christ, as I said earlier, we know that God works all things together for our good, including trials, tribulations, and persecution. Therefore, we have joy because of what God is doing in us through these trials. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it joy when you have trials. That's what the Bible's consistent message is. Elizabeth Elliot knew joy. She spoke of the joy of serving God and the joy of knowing that her husband's death was not in vain when she spoke to our chapel group over 20 years ago. I remember her speaking about joy. And I just remember this, this, the man standing beside her threw a spear through her husband. And she's talking about joy. And so is this man. As they stood there and spoke to our chapel service. It was amazing to me. It was a testimony to me that helped me embrace this truth that we're preaching today. It helped me to say, yes, God is big. And you know what? I don't think it's a coincidence that her radio broadcast that she hosted from 1988 to 2001, you know what the title of that radio broadcast was? Gateway to Joy. That was the name of her broadcast. I don't think that's a coincidence. She knew that persecution of her husband was a horrendous evil and it was painful and there was great lamentation yet she knew that a sovereign and good God was using it for his purposes to spread the gospel and therefore there was great joy in her heart I want us to take away a few points of application this morning and then we'll close with a song first of all I want us to see that um, well it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this passage because we don't have great persecution. I mean, I don't know if any of you guys were chased by some sort of Amazon tribe on the way here this morning. Okay, maybe you felt like your kids were an Amazon tribe, but you weren't being chased by them or persecuted by them. Okay, I, we don't have this type of persecution that these people had or even that Jim Elliott faced. But we do face some opposition to the gospel in our culture, and it seems to be increasing. And so... All opposition, the first thing I want to see is that all opposition should be seen as opportunities to spread the good news. And the Bible says that those who were scattered went about preaching. They didn't go about moaning. They didn't go about complaining. They didn't go about just, oh, what are we going to do now? They saw it as an opportunity. Luke, it's not just a coincidence here that Luke uses the exact order, Judea and Samaria, that he uses earlier in Acts 1.8. Luke saw what was happening, and so did the believers, I believe. Philip and them, when they get scattered out, they realize, okay, God's doing this for a purpose. This opposition is an opportunity, and they spread the gospel. So when you're facing opposition at work, at home, wherever, view that as some sort of opportunity God's giving you to spread the good news. How? I don't know. It changes. It's different for each circumstance. But whatever opposition you're facing, especially if it's opposition to the gospel, view it as an opportunity to spread the good news. The other thing I want us to see is, we, for all of us here, don't miss an opportunity just because you don't happen to be a professional minister. Okay, all these people, Stephen was a layperson. So is Philip. And, and a lot of times in the church today, the unfortunate after effect 
of doing service the way we do it, like we're doing right here, where you guys are sitting right there and I'm standing up here, is to view ministry as something that professionals do, and therefore I am not having to do it. And I want us to see from this passage here that Philip, as well as Stephen, and the others, the apostles stayed in the city. Now, I don't know why. It doesn't give any explanation. Uh, either they were, had tremendous boldness, or maybe it's because they weren't Hellenists. I don't know, but they stayed in the city. So the professional clergy are in the city, and these guys are out there spreading the gospel. Sometimes the most effective means for spreading the gospel is simply you going through the trials of your life and shining Christ through those trials. Sometimes that has a lot more effect than me standing up here talking to people. And so I want us to see that this morning as well. Third, I want us to see that we should pray from this passage here. This is sort of indirect connection to the passage. We should pray that the most violent opposition to our faith be saved and be converted. Saul here is ravaging the church. And in just a few chapters, just a couple of chapters, Saul will be saved. So I was thinking about this passage today. Who ravages the church today? I'm not overseas. I can't, I don't know in these other countries who are the main opposition. But intellectually in our culture today, you have a new brand of atheism that seems to be more boldly speaking out against believers today. So you have guys like Christopher Hitchens and um, Richard Dawkins. Or you have entertainers who love to belittle Christians. I think particularly of Bill Maher. Bill Maher just gets a kick out of trying to make Christians look like idiots. And he produced a movie with that intention. His only purpose of producing that movie was to make Christians look like fools. And he's a slick presenter and he did a good job of it. And he hates Christians. He'll tell you he hates Christians. He thinks we're idiots. We should pray for his salvation. What a testimony if this man who's ravaging the church through his uh, stuff that he's propaganda, he spews, were to become a believer tomorrow. Wouldn't it be awesome? Let's pray for those who are ravaging the church and pray for them to come to Christ. I also want us to see from this text that we need to...
behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That we should be called.